Welcome to Secrets True Crime, the Eric Cates and Gypsy story. I am your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the story of Eric Cates, his beloved dog Gypsy, and the town of Empire, Alabama. Listener discretion is advised. The subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. It is not suitable for younger listeners. This is episode 13 of a serial podcast, and they are designed to be listened to in order. We have finally been given permission to share some great news with you. Eric and Gypsy's case has now been turned over to the Alabama Attorney General's office after five long years for Eric's family. This case is finally in the hands of professionals who are well-seasoned in investigating murders. The Walker County Sheriff's Office has zero involvement in the present or future of this case in any investigative capacity. Special Agent J.W. Barnes has taken on this case, and Toby has more confidence and hope that justice is going to be served than ever before. Everyone who is familiar with this case knows that Eric's family has been through hell with all the misconduct and shenanigans of Walker County law enforcement. You've heard about some of it, but there's one big piece that Toby was a little hesitant to share. As she's mentioned in prior episodes, she and we have become aware that Toby is just one of many fighting these same battles. We hope that by her sharing these stories that it will help not only Toby, but others too. Not long after the murders of Eric and Gypsy, Toby began to experience some strange and alarming events. The events that happened with Eric's and Gypsy's murder, Chris and Wayne were very concerned, very worried about me uh, living in Walker County. It was to the point that I stayed with Chris for several days after Eric was um, murdered. It seemed to put both at ease, Wayne and Chris at ease, because of all the rumors that were going around. And it was better for us to be there trying to get plans and arrangements made, not knowing when we were going to be able to have a funeral. We didn't know when we would get the bodies released back to us. So everything was just up in the air. After um, a couple of months, I had moved back home and um, different, different things were happening. We had already been having problems with the Sheriff's Department and getting our questions answered. And after the funeral that we had in May, I went back to work. I lived here in Walker County and worked in Birmingham. I had um, taken my car to have the oil changed in Jasper. And um, I had left my laptop in 
the back seat after the car had been pulled into the service area and I asked if I could go get it and I did and I saw a young man there leaning into my vehicle under the hood and I made the statement I just needed to get something out of the back seat and I um, went and did some work on my computer while the oil was being changed the next day I went to work and on my way back home that afternoon I work on 280 and right before the Mount Olive exit my car started smoking and I saw what I thought were flames coming out from under the hood it was getting dark and I pulled off and went to the service station there in Mount Olive I I pulled up kind of close to the door but yet to the side I wanted to get a fire extinguisher at that point I just saw smoke but the owner of the store the manager came running out and I called to him to get a fire extinguisher we didn't raise the hood we were afraid the flames would get worse so he sprayed from underneath and from the front and when we thought that the fire was out he that's when he raised the hood took the fire extinguisher and sprayed more uh, he saw the flames I wanted to let the car sit and cool off and he told me that they had cameras and that I could have the car towed the next morning. I called my niece to come and get me, and I went the next morning and got a, um, a rental car, and I met the wrecker back at Mount Olive to tow my vehicle. And I wanted it towed to a different location than where the oil had been changed. I was concerned. I understand that you know when you spill oil, uh, you know, you may have some smoke or whatever, but I just wanted to make sure with everything that was going on with Eric's case, I had concerns. I told the investigator that was working Eric's case after I had the vehicle towed to the um, shop. I went back to Jasper and met the investigator, and I told him that my car had caught on fire. And we talked about it for a little while, and I went to the place of business where I had the oil changed, and I asked to speak to the person that changed my oil, and he wasn't there. And when I described the individual that I had seen at the car, when I went back to get my laptop, I was told that no one worked there that met that description. What was someone doing around my car that didn't work there? So I asked to see the surveillance footage, and I was told that the cameras wasn't working the day that my oil was changed. So it, it several things, it, let me say here, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I have no proof of anything like that, but I just felt like there was a lot of coincidences that happened with my oil change. Number one, the person that I saw did not work there. The surveillance cameras wasn't working. And the only thing that the investigator said in regards to this was, um, you sure are a lucky lady. Wayne, of course, was very upset. He didn't think it was a coincidence at all. 
So I had to be very careful with him because he um, he wanted me to quit work. He wanted me to stay with him, very protective. And um, of course, I refused. I, you know, you, you can't just stop doing things. I wasn't about to be intimidated. It just made me more conscious of what was going on around me. I was a little more protective, did things a little slower. As Toby stated, she has no proof of what caused the fire in her vehicle, but a vehicle fire paired with the strange events surrounding who was working on her car that day would be enough to spook anyone. Unfortunately, this event was just the beginning of a long string of things that continued to happen. About three months after the car incident, communication between the sheriff's department and us had really came to a a head. It wasn't very pleasant. Again, I was living in Walker County, and a preacher that I had known for many years came to me and said that he had been asked by um, someone from Walker County Sheriff's Department to um, ask me to um, be quiet, that I was being too vocal, too loud, that I just needed to uh, let them do their job, and I needed to be quiet. Well, this preacher had known me for a long time. He told the people that told him that wouldn't be a good idea for him to tell me that because that would probably only make me worse. And that's pretty much my reply to him. I said, if they think this is loud, they haven't seen anything yet. And keep in mind at this point that I was still trying to keep up a positive attitude concerning the sheriff's department. There was no negative publicity, no negative comments to the public, to newspapers, to the television. I wanted to keep a positive communication with anything that we did about Eric and Gypsy. I can't help but wonder how many law enforcement agencies in the United States ask a minister or other religious figure to go ask the mother of a murder victim to be quiet. And probably a year after this, a year after Eric and Gypsy's murder, it got to be the point that I started noticing unmarked vehicles would be on the road that I have to travel from work to home in Walker County. And there would be times that these vehicles, a couple in particular, one would stay at a a stop sign. And when I would be coming through, again, it would be dark, you know, around 7.30, 8, 8.30 before I would ever get home. And on this particular road at the stop sign, the vehicle's lights would be off until I would give my turn signal. And then it's like, they would turn their lights on and go from the high-low beam. The vehicle had tinted windows, and you could not see in the inside. 
there was no marking on the vehicle, um, but it would resemble an unmarked law enforcement vehicle. And then weeks later, it would be a marked Walker County vehicle. It would be sitting in the same spot and I would give my signal to turn and the vehicle's lights would come on and it would be like the high-low beam, like you were telling somebody, hello, I'm here. And I never pulled over to talk to them. I did say something to the investigator that was working Eric's case and he acted like he didn't know anything about it. And I got a call one night from someone that was wanting to give me information. They lived um, in Walker County. And so I called someone to go with me. I didn't want to go, you know, at dark to this residence that I did not know anyone to try and get information. But I believe that anyone that wanted to talk to me and possibly give me information I was going to talk to somehow, some way. And this particular night, the person that I got to go with me, we went and we listened to what the person had to say. And I felt like that it was enough that, and it was truthful. And I felt like Walker County needed to know. It being that night, I knew that the investigator that handled Eric's case had already went home for the day, but I didn't feel like this was information that I needed to sit on. And so when I finally talked the informant into letting me call the sheriff's office for them to come out and take a statement and get the information, I was told by the um, deputy that he did not need the address, that he knew where I was. I had this conversation on speakerphone, so the informant heard this, and the person that I had taken with me also heard this. They were shocked. I was a little shocked, not as much as they, because I had already realized that um, the Walker County Sheriff's Department, some of them, had already made their presence known to me when I would be at certain places or when I was driving down the road. It wasn't anything unusual for me to see a, um, a deputy's car. Uh, again, after this, there were several occasions that um, I started changing up my route coming home. I didn't go the same road. There were several ways that I could come home. It was probably a couple of weeks after I had started changing up my route that um, the first time it happened, I was almost at my driveway off of the main road and there was a car pulled off to the side, to the left side of where I would be turning to the right, almost at my driveway. It was probably 50 feet from where I would turn. Lights were off. Again, it was dark. When I went to give my signal, the blinker to turn to the right, the car's headlights came on and um, it blinked like the high-low beam. And when I had made my turn and I looked back, it was a Walker County vehicle marking with the Walker County Sheriff's Department on it. And that happened several times. 
And then in May of 2016, I moved back to Coleman County. Uh, Wayne was pretty much insistent about this because I had went by his house on my way home and picked him up. He was coming to my house that night. And um, it just so happened that that was one of the nights the car was there waiting, pulled off to the side. And when I started to turn, get my signal, the lights would come on and it upset Wayne. And he was very adamant that um, I was moving back to Coleman County. So again, uh, the people around me were more concerned, not that I wasn't concerned, but they were very concerned because I wasn't letting this go. We were being vocal about what was not being done about not having an autopsy report, not having a toxicology report, things not being followed up on. And so it caused concerns. But again, trying to intimidate someone for asking legitimate questions and wanting answers to why your child and his dog have been so brutally murdered, you can't just stop. I can't. And I understand that there are people out there that have also went through this type of intimidation and worse. And they have been quiet. They are scared. And they have to live with this every day. These are just a handful of the occurrences that happened to Toby. It seemed that investigators were more interested in what the Cates family was doing and what they knew about Eric and Gypsy's murder than they were of actually solving the crime itself. There are more occurrences that have happened that we can't tell you about because they would reveal the identity of people who have helped the Cates family. But I can tell you this, all of the events centered on what the Cates family was doing and how much they might have discovered about the murder of Eric and Gypsy. There was an unusual and alarming interest in their daily activities and in who might be providing information to them about the murders. Since the Cates family was providing every single detail and lead they were given to the Walker County Sheriff's Office at the time, it seems to point to more of an effort to block them from learning the truth and to intimidate them than anything else. I've asked Toby how these events made her feel. I felt like that they wanted me to know that they were there. I felt like it was intimidation. I felt like that was a way of of them showing me that they could appear at any time or be anywhere they wanted to. But all in all, I'm very pro-law enforcement. I didn't feel like that I should approach the vehicle. I wasn't looking for trouble. I wasn't asking for trouble. Maybe they were just, you know, there to say hi or whatever. But um, that's not a very good way to um, meet somebody 
or to let somebody know that you're there. I mean, in my opinion, it, it was it was intimidation. I would be going to the blue store or to Empire and um, in conversations after I had been to Empire, there were several occasions that Chuck Tidwell would make a point of saying, I, I heard you were in Empire the other day. I heard you were at the blue store. I heard you were at so-and-so's house. I purposely tried not to talk to anyone until after the Walker County Sheriff's Department had talked to someone that had information that lived in Empire that were rumored to have been part of his murder. I didn't feel like that I should talk to any of them and wouldn't have if the Walker County Sheriff's Department had talked to them. But there came a time when so much was being said and we were getting so many leads and tips that wasn't being followed up on that I feel like I gave Walker County every opportunity and enough time to talk to these people. As you know, some of these people have not even been talked to as of today, over five years later, by law enforcement concerning things that happened. Walker County has not reached out to some of them. And so, yes, I have reached out to some of them and I have talked to them in the past four years. But again, it was only after Walker County was given enough time, I felt like, to talk to some of these people. And it would be brought up by Chuck or the sheriff or Darren Bridges that uh, they knew who I had talked to. They knew that I had went by so-and-so's house. And I don't feel like it was the people calling and telling them that I had talked to them. Some of the people weren't even at home that I tried to see. But yet they knew where I had been and who I had tried to talk to or who I had talked to. I mean, it's like I didn't have to call Chuck and tell him what I was doing, giving him any information. He already knew where I was. And like I said, this happened numerous times. The blue store would get a call saying that I was headed that way. It become a joke. When I would walk in, they would either have, you know, they'd have me a drink ready or they would be sitting there waiting on me. They said, well, we knew you were coming. We got a phone call that you were headed this way. You know, I mean, it's, it is intimidation. I don't know any other way to look at it. While all these events occurred under the Underwood and his chief deputy, Darren Bridges' administration, there is one much more recent event that we've become aware of. Michael Fleming is the private investigator with Echo 7 Foxtrot, LLC. He and I agreed to jointly investigate and produce these podcasts, not only on Eric and Gypsy's case, but Susan Osborne and Evan Chartrand's case in season one. It might be my voice that you hear most in the podcast, but each and every one of them contains a great deal of work from both of us. Not only is Michael a licensed private investigator in the state of Alabama, he retired from the United States Marine Corps as a gunnery sergeant, and he holds an MBA. 
If you'll recall from some of our most recent episodes, Michael and I met with Sheriff Smith in August and September 2019, and then we met with Investigator Cole in September of 2019. On January 3rd, 2020, we both accompanied Toby to a meeting at the Sheriff's office. The meeting was to be with Sheriff Smith, but it turned out he wasn't available that day. Instead, we met with Investigator Cole and Captain Moat. You've heard Toby describe in past episodes how this meeting didn't go all that well. This was the day we all realized something wasn't quite right with the supposed involvement of the SBI on Eric's case. That day, after our meeting concluded, Toby called the SBI herself and discovered that they had in fact never been working on Eric's case and that the claims of such by Sheriff Smith and the Walker County Sheriff's Office were false. Michael has learned of a very curious call that was made to the United States Marine Corps a week or two after this meeting. As I share this information with you, keep in mind that we attempted to provide any and all information we had to the Walker County Sheriff's Office, but they were not interested. A close friend of Michael's that is still on active duty contacted him to tell him that someone from an Alabama Sheriff's Office called Quantico asking about his background in the Marines. The caller was first directed to contact the Military Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, but he said that he needed the information faster than that, that he wanted to know Michael's military occupational specialty and the schools that he attended. He wanted to know his unit assignments, any disciplinary actions, and character of discharge. He said he needed this information for an investigation. At that point, he was told he would need to contact the NCIS field office in Quantico, or NCIS headquarters at the Navy Yard. However, he did not follow up. No request for information has been made to NCIS, according to Michael's contacts there. Michael wanted me to be very clear about this in case that person or the sheriff's office or even the county attorney happens to be listening to the podcast. All of his federal contacts are aware of what we are doing and have been very supportive and helpful. Quite a few even ask for updates periodically. We are both pretty astounded that not only did an employee of the sheriff's office do this, but we were so shocked that they even had the time. I mean, they could never find the time to even open up Eric's case file, yet they've got time to investigate a perfectly legitimate and licensed private investigator who has done nothing illegal? Maybe this is why there are so many unsolved murders and disappearances in Walker County. They don't have time to do a proper investigation because they are too busy going after people who have done nothing more than piss them off. There is absolutely no legitimate reason for the sheriff's office to need Michael's military records or any information such as that about either of us. Michael is a licensed private investigator in Alabama. Neither of us have violated any laws by trying to help Eric's family. I can guarantee you this. The Elmore County Sheriff's Office most certainly didn't go digging for dirt on a private investigator or a podcaster. As a matter of fact, 
I listen to and follow a lot of true crime podcasts, and I'm not aware of any law enforcement agency anywhere doing what just happened here. Something is very wrong with what happens to the families of victims in Walker County, Alabama, and to those who ask questions about things there. A law enforcement badge is supposed to mean that you enforce the law, protect the public, and fight for victims. It doesn't mean you are above the law. And things like this, the events Toby described, and the ones that she can't yet describe publicly, are abuses of power and are considered to be police misconduct. These are federal crimes. The United States Department of Justice has a division that investigates complaints such as these and can and will pursue violators with civil and criminal charges, especially when they are able to establish a pattern of abusive behavior. If you, too, have been a victim of police misconduct and abuses of power, and you need the details on how to file a complaint of your own, feel free to contact us, and we'll point you in the right direction. If you have any information that could help in solving the murders of Eric and Gypsy, please call Alabama Attorney General Special Agent John J.W. Barnes at 334-242-7345, or you can email me at secretstruecrime at gmail.com, or call our confidential tip line at 205 282 0740. If you are left still wanting even more content, please check us out on Patreon. We have filled it with great information about Susan and Evan and Eric and Gypsy. This podcast is an independent podcast. That means that everything that goes into making this podcast is done and funded by me. All of the investigative tools and resources are provided by Echo 7 Foxtrot. The tragedies we highlight and investigate have had a tremendous impact on the victims, loved ones, and friends. We don't burden them with additional expenses to cover their cases. We donate our time and talents because we want to help and hope to find the answers they need that are long overdue. For as little as $5 per month, you can receive exclusive access to members-only photos, videos, early access to episodes, and much, much more. By becoming a patron, you too are helping us help these families. Your support as a patron of Secrets True Crime Podcast helps us cover the expenses associated with producing a high-quality podcast, traveling to conduct fieldwork and interviews, and obtaining the tools and equipment needed to conduct a thorough investigation. In short, your support as a patron allows us to do more for these families. Become a patron of Secrets True Crime Podcast today and let's solve these cases together. Patreon.com slash Secrets Crime. I'll also post the link on our Facebook page. If you are enjoying the podcast, be sure to follow or subscribe in your podcast player of choice and by giving us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcast. I'm active on social media and often share photos of Eric and Gypsy. 
follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secrets Crime. The audio production for this podcast is by Kane Power at PrecisionPodcasting.com.